All right, good morning, church, and I want you to get your Bibles and get to the book of Ephesians, and we kick off another great book and section of the scriptures, one that's uh, fairly well known. Uh, many of you know verses, have memorized verses out of this great book, uh, but perhaps you've never read it all the way through. And uh, so we want to uh, let the Lord speak to us through his word and uh, take the book of Ephesians as our guide uh, during over these next several weeks. Now, um, I, I was reading uh, this week that one guy preached 42 uh, sermons out of the book of Ephesians. I plan to maybe go half that many, okay? So I hope you guys will be all right with that. Uh, some of you are um, goal-oriented, which I am too, and it seems like your goal is just to finish whatever we start, and you're trying to get figured out how we can get through this book faster. I would like to say this. Change your goal. Let your goal be... How much more conformed to the image of Christ can I become during this period of time? Let this section of your life, these uh, several Sundays of your life, let it be a landmark time in your life that God speaks to your heart in a dynamic way, a very deep way that changes your affection for him and deepens it and also changes your actions and how you live for him. Now, every single part of the scripture is equally inspired and I remember taking Old Testament survey, and a couple of you guys have been seminary, and back in those days, you took Old Testament survey, and you read through the Old Testament like four times or something, you know, whatever uh, was required of you. And I remember Dr. Larry Walker just saying, well, men, uh, all parts of the Old Testament are equally inspired, but not equally inspiring, because we were about the begat section, you know, and so we had to, you know, pilfer through it. Read that in four different translations. What difference does it make? They say the same thing. And so, um, you know, some, some parts of the Bible you read and maybe it, it seems a little more dull or a little more confusing. But the book of Ephesians, it's hard to point to any other part of the Bible that is more focused on the mystery and the excellency of salvation in Jesus Christ than in this little letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, let me give you just a quick um, overview of, of organizing this book of the Bible. So if you're reading it through this week, you will know what to do with it. Chapter one is foundation. You'll notice if you just scan this chapter, first chapter very quickly, how many times in Christ and in him are written in this first chapter. Just take a look at it real quick. And you'll find in Christ, in Christ, over and over again. Verse 1 has in Christ. Then you have in verse 3, in Christ, and so on and so forth. In verse 7, in Him. And so you'll see that repeated over and over again. And then you come down to the end of the first chapter. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And so what this first chapter about is about is the foundation that we have in Christ Jesus. That all that's going to be said and all that we believe and all that we do is built upon this foundation in Him. Just that, in Him. And so the union that we have with Christ is highlighted there and that's the foundation of everything else. This great salvation that we have is found in union with Christ Jesus. Then you go to chapter 2. And you'll notice in chapter 2 the universal scope of the gospel. And we find that if you even uh, glance down to verse 11, that the Gentiles who were once called the uncircumcision are now called the circumcision. And so you see the inclusion 
of all groups of people uh, by the gospel and all groups of people in the church. And verse 14 says, uh, he himself is our peace and he has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and so on. Oh, if only people today, those who claim the name of Christ, would so lean upon that rather than upon the history of their ethnicity, they would find that there is unity in Christ Jesus. As long as we continue to throw rocks at each other and accuse one another of sins done in the past, in, at times when we were never even born, and categorize each other according to those things, we will never have peace, we'll never have unity. But Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And chapter 2 reminds us of that. And some of the people that I know, the brothers and sisters in Christ, need to get a hold of that. And get a hold of it in a hurry. And pitch aside all these other methods of crit criticizing and critiquing humanity. And instead take the scripture and take a long look at that. Chapter 3, we move on from the foundation to the universal scope of the gospel to the goal. What is the goal? This glorious goal of the gospel. And chapter 3 highlights that out. And if you want to just look at something for um, uh, just a quick reference of what that goal is. You can go down to 3.16 there. That according to the riches of his glory. He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that, here's the goal. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God. That's the goal, the glorious goal of the gospel. This is God's purpose from eternity past for your life. And so there we have this goal of his. And then in chapter 4 down through, uh, let's say verse 16 of chapter 4, you have this next section and this is the unity section, unity in the body of Christ. And so you can read that and your, your Bible may even have a section heading that talks about unity. And so there we have unity, one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so you see the, the unity there of those who are followers of Christ. Then uh, picking up in verse 17 of chapter 4 and um, going on down through chapter 5. All of chapter 5, what you find in this section of scripture is renewal. The renewal of life. The renewal of those who are followers of Christ, what happens to them. And so you can, you can uh, sense from that whole section. And really, if you just start out with verse 17, um, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And so you're looking at a renewal of life, a different way of living. That we're called upon to live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that goes all the way down through uh, the end of chapter 5. And then the last section would be chapter 6. And that would be the Christian's armor against uh, the onslaught of the evil one. And really it picks up in, in verse number 10. And so uh, chapter 6 verses 1 through 9 you could really include in the renewal section. that I, The previous section if you so desire. So that gives you 
kind of an overview of the book so you'll know how to read it. What is this section of the book talking about? So when you're trying to read through this, uh, this letter, you'll have an idea, okay, this is the topic or this is the theme. And so with that in mind, what, is, what are these verses saying about that theme? Now, uh, some of you will come to me right after this, after my brain is completely exhausted and I have no more uh, moisture left in my body and say, now what were those headings again? And so here's my response, get it online. Okay, so there you go. All right, the city of Ephesus. Now, this is the context of this book, which you want to know a little bit about it. The city of Ephesus, it was known for this reason. It excelled in wisdom and learning. All kinds of scholars would relocate there to the city of Ephesus for the purpose of uh, interacting with those who were wise and learned people. And so that was the kind of culture that it was. It was a culture that was addicted to the search for human knowledge. If Google would have been around back then, Ephesus would have worn that thing out. At the same time, this was, interestingly enough, it was a city that was averse to or against to excelling in virtue. They felt like any standard, any strict standard of virtue would actually hinder knowledge. And so um, history even records the city expelling a citizen who presumed to live temperately and virtuously among them. And so they did not want any kind of specific codified virtue that anyone would claim is this is the way that we ought to live virtuously. It's a, it's a fallacy of humanity. And it's an addiction that I have never been able to break with people. But for some reason, humans believe that virtue rises with education. Have you ever noticed that? They, they believe that those are so interlocked that if we just give people more education, they're more, they will become automatically more virtuous. And it's interesting that we believe that while we educate them in something other than virtue during the education process. But those two seem to be, and so we, that's why in our own country we pump more, 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 more money into education because we believe, we have this undying belief that more knowledge will equal a more virtuous society. That never happens, by the way. The purpose for God having Paul write this letter to the church at Ephesus appears then to remind them of this, that there is a knowledge that cannot be obtained in the schools of Ephesus. It is the knowledge of the mystery of Christ Jesus as Lord and the mystery that God has called people from every ethnic group into his family. And the mystery of not just knowing about Christ, but Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that cannot be grasped by those who are outside of a covenant relationship with God. They can talk about it. They can explain it. But they can't feel it. So here we have Paul talking about the reality of that. 
And he talks about in this book the glorious depth of the mystery of salvation in Christ in those first three chapters. And so the first three chapters of the book of Ephesus, it's the doctrine, if you will. And if there's going to be any change or any solidity or any perseverance or any steadfastness in your Christian life, it must start with sound doctrine. There's no other way around it. Those of you that are averse to sound doctrine, here's what I think in my mind. What nutty question is coming now? Because you won't give yourself to sound doctrine. You fight it all the time. You're always fighting it. And as a result, your life is like this. Your mind is all over the place. And so I know that it's coming from you because you won't give yourself to it. Give yourself to that. It'll steady your life. Then chapters 4 through 6 are about actions, about deeds. And so you have doctrine as the foundation and then the deeds that follow in chapters 4 through 6. This is what Paul does in almost every one of his letters. He always starts with, let me just shore this, this ship up a little bit. And let me anchor you to the truth. And once we get that down, then we can talk about how we're going to sail around the world together. But let's get that down first. And so if you don't ever get that down, your Christian life is never solid. It's always kind of at this immature state where you're asking questions that are not the kind of questions that drive you deeper. It's like the questions that children have, right? You know, kids will ask, they ask amazing questions, but they're the kind of questions that you laugh at almost because they're funny. You don't want to be that kind of Christian. You want to be the kind of Christian that is growing deeper and deeper in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the kind of of Christian you want to be, growing in that. And so it's not just about the head knowledge. It's about gaining the doctrine so that you'll love God rightly and deeply and by the Spirit of God, not just at the whim of your own emotions. And so Paul is trying to tell them, they're, they're crazy people that are coming to your church. Remember what he told the church at Ephesus? That he met with the elders and said, listen man, wolves are going to come up from within you guys. And you're the shepherds, you're the elders. You've got to beat them back with sound doctrine. The, sound, the, the stick of sound doctrine is how you knock them back. And so you have to constantly teach that to your people or else the wolves will eat them. And so here, here's Paul saying again, now you guys are in this, let's say, university town. Where everybody's smart and everybody has a PhD. And so here's what I want to say to you guys. They don't know it all. And so what I'm going to do in three chapters of this letter, I'm going to teach you something they they have no idea about and cannot and are unable to grasp. That's the knowledge that we have in Christ. Now, let's begin. Just verses 1 and 2, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know you probably think to yourself, if you're in Sunday school, you read those two verses and then you go on to the good stuff. Only Pastor Tim can preach a sermon from what would amount to the heading on a Hallmark card. But that's what we have here. This is the introduction to our glorious God. It's what it is. It's the introduction. Now, look at this. He's writing this uh, book. It's a letter. So uh, what is the authority? He reminds us of the authority behind this letter or behind this book. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul has a direct call. The direct call of the apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle. 
is a unique gift to the church. For this person was directly and personally called by Christ Jesus. In person. An apostle must have witnessed the life of Christ and the resurrected Christ with his own eyes. This is why the office of the apostle no longer exists. No one qualifies. Now there are groups that try to make an individual a successor of the apostles. As if that office continues in some way in one person. But that is biblically unwarranted and absolutely dangerous for the souls of people. This fact was an important truth for the Ephesians because they're going to encounter people who claim to be an apostle but were in fact liars. Now if you remember from the book of the Revelation that the Lord Jesus commends them, the, the church at Ephesus, for having tried those who claimed they were apostles but were not. And so the doctrine of the, of the Ephesian church evidently it took because they were able to uh, find these people and scout these people out pretty quickly and dispose of that. There are those in our own day who may not claim the title of apostle. They may not claim that title. But they claim direct revelation from God just as the apostles did. These two are false apostles. And they are dangerous for the souls of people. I was explaining to the doorway class this morning that the prophets of the Old Testament, there was no written revelation at the time. It was being given. And it was being given through the writing prophets. And so the Old Testament, God would pull those guys aside and he would speak directly to them and say, Thus saith the Lord, tell Israel what I'm saying. And so they would write it down and they would proclaim it. And so they got their message directly from God. There was no written revelation. So all of that is then collected in the Bible through the prophets and the apostles. The apostles being the foundation of the church. And so that's collected here. And this is the revelation that we have. Now, for me as a pastor, what do I do? I don't dare come in here and say things to you like, You know, God just told me today I need to tell you this. That's ridiculous. That's from lazy people who claim to be called to the ministry but will not give themselves to the study, the arduous and sweat-filled study of the Word of God so that they may explain to their people what God has already said. All I do is take what God has said, study it, Study it in context, let Scripture describe Scripture, let Scripture explain Scripture, and then take it in some sensible fashion and feed it back to you. I'm not here to give you something new, I'm here to give you the old, old story. The same old thing over and over again. Why? Because we have such a craving for the novel things of life that we always follow after that and we become spiritually stupid. So when they get up there and say, you know, God just spoke to my heart and said, set them down. Sit down. Now, if they want to say to me, now through the word, God has said this. And you can look at the word to yourself and say, yeah, that's what he does say to us. Then we're on good ground. But for them to set themselves apart and say, now, God has been speaking to me about this issue. And you people need to realize that God is speaking through me to you. 
and you're supposed to hop up and do that? That's a false apostle. That's false. Now, see, I realize that for me, that really, that takes, man, that takes a tool out of my belt. Because, man, I, you know, I could have, could fool you people and get you all to do what I want you to do. But it's saying God spoke to me and I'm the pastor and he doesn't speak to you like that. But that would be false. Now, God has given me an office that he hasn't given to you. Obviously, he's going to give me insight to the scripture that he may not give to you. But then when I preach to you, you should be able to look to the scripture and go, aha, yes, that's it. Because the Holy Spirit is going to confirm in your own heart. Oh, I didn't see it that way, but I see it now. There is the scripture. I see it. This is how it works. Now, does that seem less mysterious to you? Maybe it seems less, you know, twilight zone or something. And y'all got your addiction to mountain religion from eastern Kentucky. Can I get a witness? Amen. Aha. So, you know, so that, that kind of thing is just, it's just not real. It's lazy men trying to trick you with whatever they think's on their mind. The direct call of an apostle is different. That office no longer exists. Now look at the divine decree of the author. He says, by the will of God, Paul was chosen to be an apostle who writes and writes down the word of God. He was chosen by Jesus by the will of God. Now God had chosen Paul to be an apostle. This is an immediate choice, meaning there were no means between the man and God. Remember, Paul gets knocked off the horse. And, and Jesus says directly to him, I am sending you to the Gentiles. So it was a direct call. Now, a man may be called the gospel ministry by God in our day, but he's also affirmed through the church. He's approved by a council of elders. So it is different. The calling, Jesus doesn't come to us personally and visibly and say, I now call you. Instead, it is the speaking through the word of God that he calls us now. Now, something that is uh, interesting about all of that is that he doesn't call everybody like that. Now, before we get all wound up about things, let's just take a moment and let God be God. God gets to call whomever he pleases. I, I, I wouldn't have chose me. I mean, I just, for me personally, I'm just looking down the list. I'm, nah, I don't think so. Let's pass over that guy. Uh, way too much of a project. So let's go on with somebody else. And um, so God does that. God chooses. God chooses whom he wants to call to salvation. He chooses who he wants to call in the gospel ministry to, to be pastors, and elders. He does, that, he does that himself. He got to choose whom he wants to be apostles. Not everybody got to be an apostle. He got to choose whom he wanted. And so that's just the way that works in life. And so we just let God be on the throne, take humanity off of it, and we get to submit to his choice rather than making him submit to ours. At the same time, it has to be remembered that the offices of the ministry are not human inventions. Did you know this? Every job and every task in the world is invented by people, by men, except for two. The office of the elder and pastor and the office of deacon. Those are invented by God. Everything else is invented by man. Did you realize that? And so if you're serving in one of those two offices, you now have a stewardship. You now have a responsibility laid upon you. These are by the will of God as well. So the authority of this book, how do we know that we can trust it and believe it? And it's because it's an apostle who wrote it. 
An apostle who is called by Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, the audience of this book. We've spoken of the audience just a little bit, but who's receiving this book? The Bible says here, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, there's, there's something that we need to learn here as well and get our understanding straight because it is important. The people who receive this letter, notice their holy position. They're called saints. Notice their living as well. Notice that they're commanded to pray but not prayed to as well. Just thought I'd throw that out there. They are holy ones. And they are granted this title and position based upon only one thing. Only one qualification. Only one standard do they have to meet to be a saint. It's not about how many orphanages they run. It's not how much food they distributed to people. It's not about how many flat tires they fixed. It's not about any of those things. How did they get this title and, and obtain and to this position of being called a saint? Well, it tells us in Christ Jesus. One qualification alone. Union with Christ Jesus. Now, how many of the people at the church of Ephesus are saints? All of them. Because they had regenerate church membership. They didn't have any members that were not saved. So all of them are saints. How are they saints? Because they're great people? No, because they have a great Savior. That's how they're saints. So it's by their union with Christ Jesus. We're talking about that mystical union that's brought about by the Spirit of God at the new birth. There are saints in heaven to be sure. But there are also saints on earth. All who belong to Christ Jesus in all the ages are termed saint by Him. Holy one is the meaning. Only acceptable holiness that is granted before God is that holiness that's given to us by our union with Jesus Christ. Now note here also, this is a local church at Ephesus. These saints gather in a certain place each Sunday for worship. They worship Jesus. They have biblical church leadership. They've pledged allegiance to the apostles' doctrine, and they seek to preach the gospel to the world. Note that the the authority and the primacy of the local church here is highlighted. The saints who are in Ephesus. Now, in the book of Ephesians, the idea of the, quote, universal church is also used, and we'll talk about that. But the application of what is said here is only possible in the context of a real local church. So their holy position, the saints at Ephesus. And notice their practice. The Bible says here they are faithful to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. And in Christ Jesus modifies saints and faithful ones both. The Lord is not saying this. He's not saying there are two kinds of saints, faithful and unfaithful. Which one are you? Instead, this is a further explanation of how saints behave. To be a saint is their position in Christ. To be faithful is their practice, the practice of the saints. These two descriptions also match the two halves of this book. The first half, speaking of chapters 1 through 3, the position of God's followers, of followers of Jesus, their position, their sainthood, if you will. Then the second half of the book of Ephesians, uh, chapters 4 through 6, speaks of their faithfulness in Him, their practice. 
And so these two titles at the very beginning of the book of Ephesians actually describes the division of the book. So it's not just mindless words that we have here at the beginning. These things actually refer to something. The acquired status of sainthood solely by our union with Christ. And then the challenge to be a saint and to live it out in practice. This letter also, we need to know this. This letter is to churches. Often when Paul writes a letter, he tells the Christians that receive it that this letter is to be written or is to be read in other churches as well. Not just if you look at the book of Colossians and Corinthians and so on. It's to be read in other churches as well. And so here's what we gather from this. That what is said here in these letters is for all churches in all ages. At all time. The authority of the apostle to command the Ephesian church is also the authority to command us through this same letter. Let's put it a different way. We are not here gathered to study archaic literature and hopefully derive from the past some lessons that we might apply today. Instead, we are placing ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. And it must be heeded today in churches just as much as it was heeded and listened to and obeyed in the church at Ephesus. It was written specifically with churches throughout all ages in mind. And so when we come to this book, we come to it with humility and we ask God, tell us, O Lord, what you would have of us. First of all, tell us who we are in Christ, chapters 1 through 3. And then, Lord, by your grace, tell us what we must do, chapters 4 through 6. Now, the application of the book. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The substance of the Christian's inheritance is spoken of here. Grace to you and peace. What do you get as a Christian? You get grace. This is God's unearned kindness in action. Now, there is the attribute of grace that God has, but that's not what this is speaking of. This is speaking of God's application of grace to your life. We know that the book of Ephesians tells us that it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest any man should boast or brag about it. It's a gift. God's grace in action. How many times in this book are we told, you're dead in trespasses and sin. You need to rise from the dead. You were this kind of person. You were encaptured by Satan. You were a, a part of the kingdom of darkness. There's some awful things said about humanity in this book. But you must embrace that about yourself. The first step toward Christ is to understand that you're not in Christ for a reason. And the reason being is because you are eaten up with sin. You love sin and you want more of it. So that's the problem in every person's life. Now see, here's what goes on in society. Society, our, our people, our, our leadership, they, they look out at society and they say, man, there are a lot of problems out there. And there are. 
And so they go back to work and they try to come up with these programs like, okay, well, you know, if somehow we help people do this and we help them do that and this and they'll improve their life and they'll get better and, and they'll quit doing that and they'll stop doing this and they'll quit. And have you ever noticed that no matter what we do to try to help people, they try to cheat to get more? You know, you, you, have you ever noticed you, you, you get your wallet out to take a $20 bill out to give somebody and he's eyeing your credit card? I punch you in the face, man. We we have a wrong idea. Humans have a wrong idea about what the foundational problem of humanity is. The foundational problem is sin. It is a heart of rebellion against God, and then it is the power and force of sin that motivates us and moves us. To not love our neighbors ourselves and not love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to live like pagans and live like the Gentiles and so on and so forth. So the book of Ephesians is going to tell us the foundational fundamental problem with man. But also the eternal solution by God. So the substance of our inheritance, grace, God's unearned kindness in action. And God applies that to the life of those. And you'll find out how he applies it and to whom he applies it as we go a little further. Now, I want to just go ahead and warn you right now. And this will probably should pretty much kill the invitation. Nothing like this, you know, quenching the spirit of God on a regular basis. But uh, some of you are just going to have a, a lot of, of inner struggle with this book. But I, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to take a step back. And I want you to ask yourself, is my belief system based upon what makes me feel comfortable or what the Bible actually says? I'm not going to apologize for one word in this. And some of it's just going to rub some of y'all the wrong way. And all I can say to you is if it rubs a cat the wrong way, turn the cat around. That's all I can tell you. So you're just going to have to, you're just going to, have to take it in. Uh, th there are other things that are going to put, other people are going to preach in a way that's going to put humanity upon the throne of the universe. That is not going to be what happens here. And the book of Ephesians is going to tell you why it shouldn't be that way. And so I'm just going to ask you to just take it in and please consider what God says. And let what grandma told you on her knee back when you were, you know, listening to her talk about the Bible. Let that be put aside for just a moment. And what you've learned from a culture about Christianity and what you learned from your friends sitting around in a Bible study that has no content to it, but you're all sitting around just talking, would you please just let the Bible speak this time? Just let God say what God wants to say. And the rest of us will have to say something like this, God, I don't understand. It's not comfortable to me, but you're God. Well, amen. Amen. Yes. Now you say, I don't know what you're talking about, preacher. You will. The substance of the Christian's inheritance, grace. And then look at this, peace also. Oh, we've got to hurry. We don't want to talk about good stuff too long. We've got to get home and watch the news and get depressed out of our minds. Peace. Look at this. This flows out from grace. Grace to you and peace. The peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have the peace of God as a follower of Christ. Therefore, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace. Do you know the world has no peace? Do you know the persons you pass on the street every day has no peace? 
You know how I know they have no peace? They can't even sit at a red light. There is something's grinding in them all the time. Something's stirring all the time. Persons that you're working next to every day at work. You know what? No peace in their life. Oh, listen to them talk. Nothing but turmoil. We listened to a story about one of our family, some of our family this, this last week. And I just thought to myself, I, I told my wife, I said, if I hear any more of this, I'm just going to have to go somewhere and just jump off a bridge. I mean, there's, there's no peace there at all. There's just nothing but turmoil, nothing but heartache, nothing but destruction. Why? Because they don't have Christ. Now, we may ask this question. We're looking at the source here. You know, um, the, the, the substance there, you grace and peace. I, I guess I need to say this. Grace is this. Okay, maybe this will help us a little bit. Grace is, is the motivation and application of pardon. Being pardoned for our sin. Peace is then the result that God can enter into a friendship with us. You see, you, you get both as a Christian. You're not just a pardoned criminal. You then become a child of the king. You get adopted. You get brought into his family. Listen, listen to this. You get to be loved by God. That's what peace is about. You get to be loved. Have you ever thought about this? When we talk about grace, we talk about the favor of God. You know what that means? You're one of his favorites. The favor of God. He has marked you as one of his favorites. And therefore pardoning you based upon the shed blood of Christ. Now he loves you. Say, well, God loves everybody. He does love everybody. But it's not salvation kind of love. I mean, I love everybody here, but I only have one beloved. You understand what I'm saying? And God's the same way. He loves the world. But you're his beloved. It's a different matter. You've received grace. You've been given grace. You have the peace of a relationship with him now. Total different story. Boy, I'd make a Baptist shout. The source of the Christian's inheritance from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. is where it's from. Why isn't the Holy Spirit mentioned? Why is the Holy Spirit not mentioned here? Notice in these verses you have apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You have um, peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we are Trinitarians here. We believe in three persons uh, in, in one. We, we believe that. And so why isn't the Holy Spirit mentioned here? There's a good reason. The Holy Spirit is the one who communicates and reveals to people the grace and peace of salvation in Jesus. It is His honor to do so. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to have the spotlight. The Holy Spirit through the scriptures has never been one to jump out of the pages and say, look at me everyone. He's never been that way. Sometimes I think of him as the shy one of the Trinity. He's the one who works in the background a lot, unnoticed and unseen. But isn't this what Jesus said? Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and not speak of himself. But he would speak of the salvation in Christ Jesus. What did the Holy Spirit do when he moved among the prophets? He moved among them that they would search out Christ. Not search out the Holy Spirit, but search out Christ. When and where would we be born? And where, where, would, the, uh, where would redemption take place? And all of those things. It was the Holy Spirit moving in their life. 
And so here's an application for that. It's not that we never talk about the Holy Spirit. It's not that we never teach about Him. We must. But groups that seek to constantly exalt the Holy Spirit to center stage in their worship service and in their practices all the time actually work against Him. For He, by the words of Jesus, seeks to exalt the Son and the Father. And so when we have these words here, you have grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what you say? Way to go, Holy Spirit. You did it just right. You did exactly what you said you would do. You carried out exactly the mission that the Son said that you would carry out. That you would exalt the Father and the Son. Way to go, Holy Spirit. And every time that He's quiet and every time that He's silent, we say to ourselves, that's the work of the Spirit of God. Now, Let's finish this up. I know that I could preach an hour and a half on two verses. But I also realized that the mind can only take in what the seat can endure. So let's say this. Let's take these first two verses and, and let's, just, let's just say this. Let, let's apply this to your life if you're a non-Christian. Some of you are you're not a devoted follower of Jesus. You're curious you're learning, but you're not a follower of Christ. Here's the question. Have you really experienced the grace of God that comes through personal union with Jesus Christ? There are only two kinds of people. Those are in Christ, those outside of Christ. That's it. Have you come to that union of relationship with Jesus? How do you do that? Do you turn away, repent? Of your sinfulness. Your acts of rebellion. Your determination to rule life on your own terms. You ditch that. You forget it. You leave it behind. You turn with faith in your heart toward Jesus. And you believe with all of your heart that he died on the cross in your place because of your rebellion. Not because of his, but yours. He took the punishment that you deserve because the wages of sin is always death. And he takes that penalty for you in your place. He rises again to vindicate himself that he is the sinless son of God. And therefore he can offer you forgiveness, pardon, and eternal life. But you must give your heart over to him. You must commit to him. It must be the kind of belief that is committing your life to him as Lord. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit is the one that causes you to have a union with Jesus. You come together. It's a mystical union. It's hard to, hard to understand. It's hard to explain. No one can see it, but everyone can see the effects of it. The wind is hard to explain. No one can see it, but people can see the effect of it. And so that's what happens in your life. This is not just intellectual. You have to have the right knowledge of Jesus to be sure. But it's not just knowing things. It's like knowing things about marriage but never getting married. It's about watching all the TV shows about marriage but never getting married. It's about reading books about marriage but never getting married. It's not the same thing as being married. You may be an expert in knowledge but absolutely an ignoramus in application. You never ever understand until you commit. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not in union with him. Jesus said, he that's not with me is against me. You're actually living a life against Christ. Wouldn't you come today? See, we have an invitation time. What's this for? For you to come into union with Jesus. That's what it's for. 
And so we'll have an invitation time here in just a moment. I want you to come. Now, what about for Christians? Here's what we find. If you and I will be grounded in the free grace of God, meditating, concentrating on His eternal love, grabbing hold of and glorying in the redemption through Christ alone, and giving ourselves to the inner workings of the Spirit of God, then we shall never waver, we shall never move. The culture may do what it will. Our society can say what it wants. But as for us, we will stand upon the firm foundation of Christ Jesus, glorying in our salvation that the world cannot understand and living for Him in spite of all that goes on around us. We pray with me. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for this precious section of the Bible. Lord, we can never do justice to it by study over and over and over again. There's just always more and more. But Lord, this is simple and this is true and this is real. That those who are outside of Christ and not in union with Him are destined for devil's hell. That's just plain and simple. And I ask you today, Lord, for those who've been pretending, those who've been putting out up an outside uh, facade about religion, but yet their heart is far from you. Would you draw them to Christ today, Holy Spirit of God? Would you draw them to Jesus? Would you convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment so that they may flee from the darkness in which they live and run to Christ and be rescued from the awful consequences of sin? Father, I pray for every Christian here today as well that we would gain a renewed vigor in our walk with you because we rest upon the foundation of Christ and the glorious thing that you've done for us in salvation. And Lord, may we love you deeper and may we worship you more clearly and spiritually. And may we live for you more accurately and unwaveringly. And so for every Christian here today, Father, for those that have not been living for you, I pray and ask that you would please, by your grace, convict us of that that we may walk with our friend and Savior as we all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.